I'm Mike Vardy. Managing passwords can be a real headache, right? Think about it. Every website requires a new password. Each one needs to be unique, secure, and somehow memorable. But there's a better way. Welcome to the world of 1Password, where your entire company can generate strong, unique passwords, store them securely, and access them across any device without ever needing a reset. Imagine never having to click Forgot Password again. With 1Password's award-winning design, managing passwords becomes a breeze for you and your entire team. It's trusted by millions, including top companies like IBM and Slack. Here's the best part. My listeners can try 1Password for free for two weeks. Right now, get your free trial at onepasswordcom slash ConVo. Secure your passwords and simplify your online security with 1Password. Are you a small business owner struggling to find the right talent for your team? I've been there, and I know how challenging it can be. That's why I recommend LinkedIn Jobs. It's not just any job board. It's a community where you can find professionals who are the perfect fit for your business, many of whom aren't checking other job sites. In fact, 70% of LinkedIn users aren't visiting other leading job sites, making LinkedIn your best bet for finding top talent. With LinkedIn Jobs, you can post your job and reach qualified candidates quickly. 86% of small businesses find a qualified candidate within 24 hours. And now, you can post your job for free at linkedin.com slash conversation. That's right, for free. Don't miss out on finding top talent. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash conversation today. Terms and conditions apply. Starting an online business or expanding your physical storefront online has never been easier thanks to Shopify. This global commerce platform supports you at every stage of your business journey. From launching your online shop to managing a million orders, Shopify is there to simplify and accelerate your growth. It's not just about selling products. Shopify helps you manage every aspect of your business with their all-in-one e-commerce platform and in-person POS system. But that's not all. Shopify helps you convert visitors into customers with the best converting checkout process on the internet, which performs up to 36% better than other platforms. And now a special offer for my listeners. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash timecrafting, all lowercase. Whether you're just starting out or looking to scale up, Shopify is the perfect partner for your business. Meal planning is important because it prevents us from being a disappointed wreck when dinner time comes around and we have no clue what to make or even if we have the ingredients to make the meal. It's a time and a money saver, but most importantly, it frees up valuable brain space. Creating a meal plan prepares us for the week to come and gives us peace of mind that we're organized and can feed ourselves and our family. That's why I do it and that's why Plan to Eat helps me do it. Your subscription includes access to the Plan to Eat website and fully featured mobile apps on iOS and Android. And Plan to Eat gives you the tools to clip and organize recipes from any website, the ones your family loves and that fit your dietary preferences and needs. And you can create a meal plan around your schedule. Then what happens is the Plan to Eat software automatically creates an organized shopping list based on your plan. So sign up for your free trial at plantoeat.com slash timecrafting. That's plantoeat.com forward slash timecrafting. The coupon will be automatically applied to your account and can be used when you're ready to subscribe. It's valid for new customers only. Give Plan to Eat a try today. And this is the Productivityist Podcast. Real artists don't have to. 
to starve. They shouldn't. They can thrive. And in Jeff Goins' new book, Real Artists Don't Starve, Timeless Strategies for Thriving in the New Creative Age, he aims to prove that and to, and to prove it for anybody. And remember, an artist, as Todd Henry defines, it doesn't have to be a creative, especially. It doesn't have to be uh, somebody who is a writer or an actor or anything like that. It it could be somebody who is creative in their endeavor. And in this episode, I talk with Jeff Goins about many things, including, you know, the origins of his last name. We get uh, that right out of the way. Uh, we talk about the idea of why stealing could be a really good thing, as well as collaboration. When it comes to artistry, the mindset, you know, the the marketing, all that stuff that's involved. And of course, the money to go from uh, starving to thriving. So much goodness in this episode, so let's just get to it. Here is my conversation with Jeff Goins on the Productivityist podcast. Uh, Jeff Goins is here with me, uh, not related at all to Toronto Blue Jays baseball player Ryan Goins, because they're spelled the same, but totally different. Right, Jeff? That's right, sort of, because <laughs> <laughs> I grew I grew up hearing that my name was pronounced Goins, because I'm from Chicago, and you know, we say everything with a nasally diphthong. Uh, but my dad's parents are from Alabama. And uh, as, as you know, Mike, I moved back down south about 10 years ago to Tennessee and met some of my great aunts and uncles, uh, you know, my, my grandparents, brothers and sisters, and they all say Goins. So uh, it's kind of both, but as for me and my house, we say Goins. <laughs> um, actually, and you've just given me the title of our episode, Nasally Diphthong is what we're going to call this episode, because <laughs> it's never actually been <laughs> mentioned during. <laughs> um, Jeff, thanks for joining me today on the show. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for having me, Mike. It's always uh, good to chat with you. So um, I want to, I mean, you are a writer. In fact, the website that we send people to more, more often when it comes to this stuff is is goinswriter.com. Uh, but you've got another website that we're going to send people to. It's called don'tstarve.com because you've got a book, a new book, as we're recording this coming out, Real Artists yes. Don't Starve, Timeless Strategies for Thriving in the New Creative Age. And, uh, you know, your last book, The Art of Work, you've done, I mean, you've, you're prolific. And I want to start there because I think it'll lend us ourselves nicely as we get into the the, the meat of the book. Um, how in the heck are you so prolific, and and yet doing all the other things that you do, like your conference and building courses? On how do you stay prolific, prolific and productive, and yet keep that quality level so high? Because that's another hallmark of yours. Well, thanks, man. I I actually think that quality follows quantity. So I think, you know, being prolific is um, the way that I practice, you know, and and honestly, uh, not trying to, you know, discard a compliment or anything, but uh, I, I don't think writing a book every two years is prolific in the world of writing. When I have friends who are writing dozens of books sometimes, you know, writing, uh, especially fiction writers who are writing, uh, you know, sometimes a book a month. I mean, it's, it's crazy, you know, the amount of, uh, prolific people that are out there. Sean Platt does this. Uh, my friend, Stacy Claflin, who's a best-selling self-published novelist. Uh, when she launched her writing career, she wrote, uh, 20 books in three years. Uh, so when you have friends like that, you kind of feel lazy, but, um, I feel like, you know, this is the amount of work that I can do that is, um, uh, good and stuff that I'm proud of and, uh, is in sync with, um, 
just, you know, kind of what I'm wrestling through. I write books not um, to share things that I figured out, but I write books to figure things out. And, and I like the research process. I didn't always like that. I like asking a question and going, I don't, I don't know the answer to that. A, a writer once said, I don't know what I think until I read what I say. And I mean, that's, that's why I write so much is just to kind of figure things out for myself. Now, you've divided this new book, and you and I had a great chance to talk about this, your book at uh, Tropical Think Tank, over many a breakfast and, and uh, in my case, a cherry pie filling covered pancakes. Which I think we dubbed Fancy Pancakes. Fancy Pancakes. <laughs> I think that was your wife's <laughs> moniker. <laughs> um, you, the new book, uh, you've divided into three particular components, um, yeah. mindset, market, and money. And, and what I love about what you're doing here, and, and again, our conversations, you know, over in, in, in Cebu kind of talked about this as well, is, is the idea that you know, artists have this mentality that, that you know, especially real artists, that they need to struggle, they need to suffer. And, and there's almost like a, um, a badge of honor, kind of like the badge of honor that people attach to busy. You know, I'm so busy and That's it becomes right. a new. Co- yeah. Um, what, how, how can people and the three M's, I definitely think, play a role in this. How can how can you dispel that? How can they dispel that myth? Because in order to be a, 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 an artist that earns a living and is able to, you know, do what you've done and, and do what so many others have done, including some of those you just mentioned, um, you, you can't have that, that, that mentality, right? That's right. So I believe that the starving artist concept is a myth. And what I mean by that is, is a myth technically is a story. And there are stories, Mike, that we tell ourselves that kind of frame our reality. And, and because these worldviews uh, inform our understanding of what's real, in many ways, myths can become real. Uh, I mean, in, in many cases, the lives that we live are oriented around a story that we tell ourselves, which is, you know, basically a myth. And so there are religious myths. There are uh, patriotic national myths. There, there are stories that people tell themselves to help them make sense of the world. And the starving artist is a story that for centuries we've told ourselves to help us make sense of, you know, why, why do artists struggle? And, and what place does art have in, say, the business world? And I want to argue today that that is a story that no longer serves us as creatives and it no longer serves uh, the world. And and so I, I wrote this book because I kept running into so many thriving artists, people who are making a living off of their art and didn't have to sell out to do it. And so this book, Real Artists Don't Starve, is the other side of the story, the other side of the coin. We are familiar with the story of the starving artist. I heard it growing up my whole life. Uh, like you, Mike, you know, I dabbled in acting yep. and other, other creative endeavors uh, in middle school, high school, college. I've always been a creative, you know, in one form or another. And I never, ever, ever, ever considered it a legitimate career path until recently. And I found that the first step in order for me to even begin to uh, produce my best work was to change my mindset. And so that's why we start with mindset in the book, because I believe that if you think like a starving artist, you're going to starve. So I'm not saying uh, some artists, you know, don't starve because we know that's true. We all know creative people who are talented, who are struggling and starving and suffering for their work. I want to argue that you don't have to do that and you don't have to compromise the quality of your work to produce 
uh, really great works of art. But you have to begin thinking like uh, like what I call a thriving artist. And so that means you've got to think things like, well, you're not born an artist. You become one. And I have to stop trying to be original and start uh, stealing from my influences, borrowing from the greats who have come before me and rearranging that stuff to create uh, you know, my best work. And uh, if you can wrap your mind around that, the other parts, the market, you know, the connections and the people part of it, and then the money, the actual income side of it, those parts are relatively easy if you can change your mindset first. Let's talk about some of the stories that we tell ourselves, because uh, one of the ones that comes to mind as you were talking immediately is that idea of imposter syndrome. You know, right, when you mentioned, right. you know, yeah. when you mentioned like, I mean, this is one thing I struggled with, you know, especially when I left GTD behind, when I said, I'm no longer going to practice GTD. Um, and I yeah. got a lot of, I got a lot of praise, like a lot of like, good for you. Like it doesn't work for me either. And a lot of people are like, you're doing it wrong. That's why it wasn't working. <laughs> like I got a lot yeah, of, right. um, yeah. and then, you know, it took me, um, it actually, I think it took me meeting David Allen in person at South by Southwest wow. three years ago. Wow. To make not to not to lose the impact, but to be able to decide, hey, you know what, GTD isn't for me anymore. So it's funny. After I met the man, I'm like, yeah, what you did was great, but it's not working for me. Um, and it probably up to that point, I was struggling with it because I thought, yeah. who am I to dispute the great David Allen? And David's I, just a guy. He's a great guy. Uh, we, yeah. you know, we had a great chance to to connect, and and hopefully we'll do so again down the line. But imposter syndrome seems to be one that I see that creeps up. How does, uh, is that one of the, the stories that you've seen? And, and what are some of the other ones, especially when it comes to mindset that kind of, you know, uh, you, you, you've seen during your research and putting together this book? Well, real quick, like, did you tell David Allen that it didn't work for you? I mean, how did that go? Or no, did you just at like that shake, point, shake his hand at, and say, hey, you're yeah, awesome. <laughs> yeah, at that point in time, it was just very much like he was, he, we were both in the green room because I was, yeah. I was doing a talk and so was, oh. uh, and so was he. And it was really yeah. cool because it's, you know, those moments, you know, you'll, you hear that old adage, don't meet your heroes, right? You know, oh, there was, uh-huh. there's, I mean, I had met two other people that were quote, my heroes that inspired me to do what I do now. And yeah. there, the, the, the exchanges were less than ideal, uh, right. at least because, you know, you always imagine you have this romantic uh, idea of what's going to happen when you say, oh, you know, you inspire me. Um, he actually lived, he was the one that I thought would be the most, um, uh, disappointing after meeting uh-huh. the other two. It was the exact opposite. I said, you yeah, know, that's hey, cool. hey, uh, you know, really love your work. It's been really inspiring. And I said, I know you've got something to prepare for. So just want to say thanks and introduce you to a few of my friends who were on the panel with me. And he goes, no, no, Mike, let's sit and chat because I'm going to talk to this yeah. other guy for like an hour. You and me, yeah. let's just sit and chat. So that, yeah. that, it, again, it, it almost, it, 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 you know, it downplayed anything like, cause he's just a guy, a guy who's done some amazing things. And absolutely. And so when I made the decision to leave GTD behind, I did tell him and, and it wasn't like, he said, you know, it's not for everybody. He goes, you know, I'm, I'm sure that you will use elements of it. I'm like, I'm sure I will. Um, you know, and I've had people even say things like, and this is what, what also fascinates me is like, oh, you know, <clears throat> some of the stuff you're using is obviously inspired by GTD. I'm like, yeah, probably. I said, but the Tickler file was invented in the 1800s and David Allen uses that. So yeah. you can't, you know, nothing, like you said, there's nothing, nothing is truly original anymore. It's the original spin that you put on it. And that helped me get past that imposter syndrome. Okay, I love this. This is great, Mike. Thanks for answering that. Because like, uh, this is a- exactly uh, what I wanted to talk about. I'm really excited. You can hear it in my voice. Mm-hmm. Um, so one of the stories the starving artist tells himself or herself is that you have to be original. 
And the truth is that no artist, no creative genius has ever been original. Uh, There's this quote by Cicero who says, to be ignorant of what occurred before you is to remain always a child. And what we find when we study the greats, and I looked at people uh, like Jim Henson uh, and, um, uh, you know, Picasso and uh, even actor Michael Caine, and you realize all these people are borrowing uh, from the people who've come before them. And I think there is this big moment of relief when you see that one of your heroes is is doing the same kind of work that you're doing in that they're just borrowing ideas from other people. Uh, there's a historian by the name of uh, Will Durant. He says, nothing is new except arrangement. Mm. And I love that because even that quote is like a, a rehash of uh, the biblical quote, which is nothing is new under the sun, right? Like which is yep. we say all the time. So even a statement about <laughs> there being nothing new is not new. Um, and, and so it turns out that uh, some of the most creative contributions in the world uh, are simple, simply rearrangements and iterations on things that have come before. And I had this epiphany uh, a while ago when I was actually doing research for this book and I was reading about the art scene in Paris in the early 20th century. And um, I was you know, just kind of digging through some sources and uh, I had read a bunch of books and uh, a, 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 an author that I look up to is Malcolm Gladwell. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I love the way he writes and thinks it's really, you know, his books have really uh, changed my perception of the world. And so there was this moment where I was researching the art scene in, you know, in, in Paris and reading about it. And, and, you know, hunting down uh, these different sources. And, and this was a book where I really tried to like do real research, not internet research, but I talked to experts and I, you know, called an art historian in Florence, Italy on Skype. And, you know, I did all these things uh, where I, I tried to get to the primary source instead of just Googling some things. And uh, I was flipping through uh, Malcolm Gladwell's book, David and Goliath, and he talks, there's a, a little section in that book where he talks about um, the Impressionists and how the Impressionists, you know, got, got started. And uh, I, I don't know why, I was, I, was looking, I was flipping through his bibliography and I realized that the, the place where he got that story uh, was the same book that I had read and I had pulled a similar story out of it. And I was like, I'm doing the same kind of research that Malcolm Gladwell is doing. Like he's like, I, I assumed he was like sitting, you know, in, uh, you know, a university somewhere, you know, in a scholarly library, looking at these classified documents. And certainly, you know, he's done some of that, but I was like, wait, like he, he read the same book and used the same book as research for his book as I'm using for this one. And it was just like, oh, we're, we're all just kind of doing the same thing. We're finding different influences and we're borrowing from them and we're reassembling them. And and if we're doing our job right, we are creating something interesting and original, uh, but we're doing it basically with the same kind of source material. And so um, I think that if you steal, and I like that word because it's a little controversial, Mm -hmm. right? Like, oh, what about copyright? Well, here's the deal. I mean, there are no new ideas. We're just uh, if, if we're creating something new and interesting, we're building on the ideas that have come before us. And, and typically we're just rearranging those and maybe uh, offering new insights and perspectives on kind of the same source material. So I think the person who borrows an idea from one person and then shares, that's stealing. You're a thief if you steal from one person. But if you steal from many people, well, now you're an artist.
And, and I think that this is a relief to those of us who don't feel particularly creative, right? We're just kind of, you know, we're just reading that book and listening to that podcast and doing that. And we reassemble it and we go, you know, like you did, Mike, you're, well, here's what I think. And I don't completely agree with that person. Don't completely agree with that person, but they've got good stuff. And I'm saying some of what they're saying, but this is how I'm packaging it. Cause this is how it works for me and people like me and people that I've worked with all of a sudden you're creating something that the world dares to call original. And you know, deep down, and this is where the imposter syndrome comes from. You're like, well, I just read some books and you know, here's what I'm, here's, here's, you know, what I'm sharing. And, and, you know, that Derek Sivers quote, which I love ends up being true. What's obvious to you is amazing to others. And Mm. I think imposter syndrome comes from going, well, uh, this is just obvious to me. So I feel like it's kind of dumb to talk about it. And I certainly wouldn't call it creative, but it turns out Mike, that this is what creative genius is. It's not creating something original. It's borrowing from a bunch of different influences. And the true artist does this well. They don't just, you know, read a Malcolm Gladwell book and say, oh, you know, Malcolm Gladwell says this and and you repurpose from one source. You try to go to the first source. You try to find, you know, some really good variety of ideas and, and interests and styles. And then you borrow from there and borrow from there and you put it together in this collage. And when people look at it, they go, wow, that's new. And just because you know the secret, you know, just because you know that you just reassembled something uh, doesn't mean that you're an imposter. It's it's interesting because as as I've studied productivity, and I'm sure as you've you've studied what you, all the stuff you've worked on, you're building this body of work, this collage, like you say, and then it's the thing that you present. And and there's an artist that's local here who actually ended up meeting Picasso at one point in time. Uh, wow. A friend of mine, he was, uh, um, his uncle was a professional wrestler, uh, but also an artist. And he actually leveraged the professional wrestling industry. So he would go to Europe and wrestle there just so he could see the different museums and apply yeah. and, and learn his craft. And mm-hmm. and I've been to the, his, all of his art, he since passed away, was passed on to his nephew, who I'm friends with. And I saw the progression of his art from when he started to what he finished off as. And just the evolution in of, of itself, not only cre- created the artist who he was, but also created what you would mention the second book, second part of the book, which is the market. All of a sudden, he went from someone who was just da- like, you know, getting getting his feet wet and learning his craft and find, you know, doing what he needed to do. Kind of like, you know, you learn to write, you learn to and all of a sudden adding his own, adding his own flavor, that Bruce Lee quote, look, absorb what is useful, discard what isn't, and add your own to the mix. Again, paraphrasing there. Um, the market, he all of a sudden people started to want what he offered. They were following him. I think the pro wrestling career might have helped him a little bit because people were like, wait a minute, he's a wrestler too. Hold on. That's a bit of an interesting story. <laughs> yeah. That's uh, interesting. You know, world champion over overseas and stuff. So the oh. market stuff, like uh that that's the next step. Once you've got that mindset and you talk about this, so where, how can, how can an artist enter like market and enter the market in a way that allows them to start to move past that starving artist, uh, not mentality, they're already there, but put themselves in a position where it becomes the reality of the situation or, or it's, they can start to see quote light at the end of the tunnel. I love that you mentioned Picasso uh, because, um, and you can, you can Google this, Picasso and Matisse, Henri Matisse, um, were sort of like rivals throughout their career. They were frenemies. <laughs> and Picasso, <laughs> were, by the way, Picasso, by the way, huge wrestling fan. 
He actually, yeah, there was right. one of those things where he would, did, he did not yeah. want to be disturbed when the wrestling matches were on. That's right. Yeah. And, yeah. and he, he was an interesting guy. And he got to meet, um, just, just the special George Gordienko in our yeah. research, we were, him and George wow. actually got to meet and, and Picasso was just as enamored and elated to meet Picasso. Yeah. And again, imposters and was like, who am I to, but it was because of the craft he applied in wrestling. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off there, but it was one of those things where it's like, really? Picasso's right. a wrestling fan. But anyways, continue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, there's that quote that was attributed to Picasso and it's been attributed to lots of people. Uh, good artists copy, great artists steal. Uh, and so when you enter the market, I mean, one of the things that um, uh, I, I think we sort of overlook is the importance of collaboration. Now, Mike, you and I work in a pretty collaborative industry, this online marketing and internet and blogging mm-hmm. world where everybody's kind of sharing with each other. It's a very generous economy. Um, and, uh, it's not true in every industry, uh, but it turns out in creative industries, um, there really is no such thing as a lone genius. This is another one of those myths that the starving artist believes is that you've got to create your best work alone. And the truth is that in order to thrive, you are almost always going to have to collaborate with other people. Uh, there's this guy named Philippe Petit. Do you know that, you know, that guy who, who did the tightrope walk across the, uh, two towers yeah, of the man, World Trade Center. Man on Wire. City. There was a documentary That's on right. Man on Wire. Yeah. 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 He talks about accomplices, uh, in, in his book, he says most any significant endeavor calls for accomplices. And, to be fair, he was doing things that were probably required a lot of permits oh. and maybe not necessarily doing legal things. So accomplices, yeah, they were, to- <laughs> yeah, they were totally illegal. Yeah. And he called it, you know, like the, you know, the great, the great caper kind of thing. Um, yeah, but, um, yeah, you're looking for, uh, accomplices in your art. I love that word. And, um, and so, you know, you've got Picasso and Matisse who are basically comparing each other and competing with one another as they're kind of coming up in their careers. Again, you can Google this Picasso and Matisse, and there's some really interesting articles about that and some great books about that. Um, friendship and competition and collaboration. It turns out that a lot of artists and creatives and certainly entrepreneurs do this. And so when you enter the market, uh, you, you, you do not, you're, first of all, you're not trying to be original. Second of all, you're paying attention to other people who are in your industry and you're finding ways to collaborate, uh, with them. And Beyonce had a, a record come out recently called lemonade and it came out that she had over 72 writers and uh, co-writers and collaborators uh, on that project. And then a bunch of people took to Twitter and were like, oh, we call her a genius. But, she, you know, she had all this help. And and even today, culturally, we believe that geniuses, artists, creatives need to be doing their best work in solitude. And the truth is that never happens. Keith Sawyer, a, a creativity expert, writes about this in his book, Group genius. And he says everything from like the fields of psychology to science, you know, you think about Edison and Sigmund Freud and even literature, uh, the most significant creative achievements in history were always the result of a group of people, uh, a collaborative circle getting together, sharing their best ideas, stealing from the influences, borrowing and combining them and building upon them. And my favorite story about this is how J.R.R. Tolkien wrote The Lord of the Rings. Do you know the story? No, I don't. I, I do know he created an entire language when he yes. did it. So this, I mean, this, I had never heard this story before. I talked to a woman named Diana Glyer who has spent the greater part of her 
career. She's a college professor. She spent the greater part of her career, decades, studying this literary group called the Inklings. And uh, it was made up of C.S. Lewis, J.R.R. Tolkien, and uh, 17 other uh, professors at Oxford and influential literary figures in the 20th century. And these guys met for decades. It was a group of all men, and they met every Tuesday evening uh, in an old classroom at Oxford, and they would drink tea and uh, smoke their pipes, and they would bring their works in progress. They would bring a piece of writing, and they would share it with each other. And, you know, so C.S. Lewis, or I'm sorry, J.R. Tolkien wrote The Hobbit, and it did pretty well, did really well. And uh, his publisher, you know, had contracted him to write the next book, which he called The New Hobbit, very creative. <laughs> and, and he's working on this. He's a few chapters in, and he's stuck. And um, he's really struggling. He was a perfectionist. He spent, uh, you know, decades um, just kind of crafting the languages and the worlds before he, he even endeavored to kind of create this. So he's writing kind of the next part of the story and, and he's stuck and he doesn't know how to work himself out of this rut. And he was he, he was not a big extrovert. He, he didn't love to collaborate. He was always very shy to share his work with his peers. But his friend, Jack, C.S. Lewis, um, uh, uh, was like the one guy that he could trust. And so, um, he, he would share it with them. So they went out to lunch one day and, and, and uh, C.S. Lewis asked, uh, Tolkien, he said, how's, how's the new book coming? And Tolkien said, it's going horrible. I'm bored out of my mind. I don't know what I'm doing wrong. And he shared a little bit of, of the story and he was just a few chapters into what would become the Lord of the Rings. And, uh, Lewis says, well, Tolkien, don't you know, that hobbits are only interesting when you put them in un-hobbit-like situations. And this like blew up Tolkien's brain because he was like, oh yeah, duh, of course, obvious. And if you think about it, you know, if, if you have seen those movies, read those books, they always start with a hobbit in some idyllic circumstance, you know, in the Shire. Mm -hmm. And the story doesn't really begin until they leave the Shire. And if you read the first few chapters of The Lord of the Rings, what are they doing? They're just hobbits in hobbit-like situations and nothing's really happening until they leave the Shire. And so he goes, oh yeah, I've got to make them leave. And this got... J.R.R. Tolkien unstuck this conversation with a friend, and he went on to write one of the most influential novels of all time, one of the best-selling books in the history of books ever. And it didn't happen with a spark of insight, a moment of genius. It happened by sharing his work with a friend. And by the way, he continued every week to bring pieces of The Lord of the Rings, that book that he was writing, uh, sharing them with the Inklings, getting feedback on it for years while he created his magnum opus, constantly getting feedback to the point that some of the guys in the group were starting to get sick of it. And they're like, God, not another Hobbit story. <laughs> but this, this is how he wrote it, yeah. not by himself, by collaborating with his friends. And that's how we create great work. You know, it's funny, as you were talking about this, I was thinking about a story that I had when I was building some aspects of what I teach with productivity. And I took I've got a scoring system that I use, and I only use it with clients right now. Uh, and uh, it, it, I, I, I was trying to crack the nut around it. Like I knew I had something, but there was just some little small piece missing. And I didn't take it to like a writer friend or a project. I took it to a buddy who I knew studied math. Yeah, cool. and, and a friend of mine who I really trust. And I invited him over, and we had a beer. And we, and he first off, he helped me crack the nut. And secondly, he goes, "This is killer. Like this is really good." So two things happened there. Number one, I got unstuck. But I think the other thing is that I was validated. 
You know what I mean? Like, it's like, again, that whole like, oh, okay, I was on the right path. And, and, you know, in the book, and I'm sure you've seen this as well, like, it doesn't always have to be another artist that helps you in terms of collaboration, right? It could be that person that doesn't, we talked about this earlier, the obviousness versus the amazement, right? Like, you know, to me, what I was putting together was pretty obvious that I think this would work, but he was amazed by it. So it was like sharing sometimes can put you in that position where it's like, okay, you get that feedback almost immediately in the collaborative process. Yeah, I I think that's absolutely true. C.S. Lewis himself said the next best thing to being wise oneself is to live in a circle of those who are. (laughs) Right. So if you're not very wise, well, just try to find people that are wiser than you and hang out with them. So, uh, yeah, you're absolutely right. Just um, surround yourself with wise people. And I think it's good to have uh, a variety of perspectives. I just came from my weekly mastermind meeting with 11 other local entrepreneurs and business owners. And there's like three of us who run online businesses, but one guy owns a furniture store. Another guy owns a series of restaurants. uh, Another guy's a lawyer. There's this variety of industries represented. And there's something good about talking to other people in your industry. Like, Hey, what's working for you? Oh, you know, like, especially in like say online marketing or something, you're like, Oh, cool. You know, I'm doing this, you know, thing with a funnel or a Facebook ad. And, and, and that can help you get unstuck in micro ways. Mm -hmm. But I I think it's very helpful to have a variety of influences in your life. Uh, Diana Glyer, the the researcher who, who, um, you know, discovered all the stuff about the inkling, she calls these people resonators. And it's good to have uh, a variety of resonators who help you see things on a macro level. So I shared a challenge that I'm having, uh, you know, uh, with, um, my business right now. Uh, and I shared it with the group, uh, today and they gave me feedback, uh, but it was, a, I mean, it was a variety of feedback. And so it wasn't just like getting tunnel vision or, you know, getting in an echo chamber of, you know, everybody telling you what you want to hear. One guy, you know, really challenged me. He goes, you know, you've brought up this problem three different times over the past year. Maybe it's not, maybe you're not having a problem with say this team member, maybe it's your culture and that's ultimately on you. And then somebody else said, well, I would do it like this. And over the course of about 30 minutes of discussing this, I started to see threads and themes where everybody was agreeing on certain things. And I said, okay, this makes a lot of sense. This is how we typically find uh, wisdom. Uh, and, and, and we get kind of direction in terms of, of where we're going. We get corrected. Okay, don't go down there. And, and then we also get resonance about, okay, this is the right path to go down. And, and, and that's exactly what happened with Lewis and Tolkien. Uh, Tolkien was writing, you know, the next Hobbit, uh, book. And by the way, Lewis was the first person that Tolkien had ever shared a piece of his writing with. He was so, so afraid of rejection and they both were. And, and these were not young men. I mean, I think they, they shared their works in progress with each other when they were like 30, you know, they were professors writing books on the side, uh, playing with poetry and, you know, mythology and, and there was this brotherhood that was forged between them and, and this trust. And so Lewis uh, um, had Tolkien's trust and he said, hey, this is good. Keep going down this road, but I need to correct you here. You're, you're staying stuck in the Shire. Get out of the Shire. And that's what good friends, that, that's what good resonators do. But I like your tip, Mike, that it's good to have a, a variety of perspectives. And I think, um, you know, we use this term today, but, you know, the inkling certainly didn't, you know, use this term. But this idea of a mastermind, mm. it, you know, getting a bunch of different wise people in a room together to create a mastermind group where you've got one, you know, core, uh, brain, you know, that, that, that together, 
um, we are smarter than, you know, uh, collectively we're smarter than each of us are, um, individually. And, and, uh, you know, it's kind of the idea of the, 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 we together are more than, you know, just the sum of our individual parts. As we get close to wrapping up and look at the title page of the book and I see the word starve, which translates to starving, starving artist, but then I see thriving. <laughs> yeah. And that's the third phase, right? Like you want to go from starving to thriving and, and, I think that's when the dollars come into play, right? At least that's what you say in the book. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, so, you know, what we're talking about here are these three areas that you need to master in order for you to not be a starving artist. And this applies to any creative endeavor. I use the word artist loosely. Art, to me, is any creative gift that you have to share with the world. So when you were standing up on stage doing stand-up comedy, Mike, you were sharing your gift. And you were doing that because um, it was fun. It was invigorating for you. You were good at it. Um, and because you wanted to make a connection with somebody else. And this to me is kind of the definition of art. We're creating things, sharing our gifts with the world in the hope that it's going to, uh, transform somebody somewhere. It's going to create some kind of change. And so when I talk about artists, that's what I'm talking about. If you have an idea that you, uh, want to share with the world, that's going to change it in some way, then you're an artist. And I think it's very important that you don't starve, that you find a way to thrive. And in order to do that, you've got to master your mindset. Then you've got to master the market. And then finally, you've got to master your money. And, uh, I think the, the simplest, uh, your summary of this is when somebody wrote Walt Disney a letter and said, Oh, you're just making money now to, you're just making films now to make money. You know, it's just all about money for you. And this was kind of in the middle of his career when things were finally starting to take off. He was no longer in so much debt. You know, he had survived a couple of, uh, you know, bankruptcies and he was on his way and was starting the parks and all this other stuff. And he wrote this person back and he said, um, we don't make films to make money. We make money so that we can make more films. And so uh, I, I know, you know, if you're a creative, you're going, well, it's not about the money. Like, I don't want to be greedy. Uh, and I agree with that. It's not about the money either. But I believe that money is a means, not a master mm. for the artist. So you don't work for money, but you make money work for you. And if you don't have any money, you can't buy any art supplies. You can't pay your rent. You can't, you know, feed yourself. And if you're starving, you know, if you're just on the brink of going broke, um, uh, you know, you're not going to create your best work. So just to be clear, I, I don't, I'm not talking about being rich. I'm talking about thriving, meaning you're making a living, creating your best work, and you're not worried about where your next meal is going to come from. Now, could you be like Michelangelo, who was uh, the richest artist of the Renaissance and arguably the best artist of the Renaissance? Sure. Like I want to argue that you, you can do your best work and you don't have to sell out to create it, that you can actually be very wealthy and well off, uh, you know, with your art. But the bottom line where so many people get stuck is just trying to get to that point where I'm making it work. And, and I think it's possible. I, I talk to thousands of people who are doing this today. And that's just a small sample of the artists and creatives and people out there doing interesting work who are uh, not making art to make money, but they're finding a way to uh, make money so that they can make more art, which really begins with believing that what you have has value and you have to discipline yourself. And I do be believe it is a discipline when you're starting out to just charge what you're worth charge something, please charge something. Uh, and then over time you can incrementally increase those prices, but do not make a habit of working for free. 
value uh, what you have because the world won't value your work until you do. And I wrote this book just because I, I wanted uh, artists and creatives and people who had interesting, valuable work to share. I wanted to challenge them to start valuing it first before they expect other people to do that. Last question. The most surprising story you found when you're doing research for this book, something that kind of like, like, what? Wow. Was there one in particular that stands out or was there a couple that kind of like threw you for through a bit of a, a loop? So, um, there was a surprising story and then there was a really fun story. I'll start with the fun story. I got to interview Alan Bean, uh, the fourth man who walked on the moon. And, and I, I end the, the book, you know, the, the last chapter with this story, uh, which is called uh, Make Money to Make Art. And Alan Bean, at 50 years old, uh, he's the fourth man to walk on the moon. He's a part of the second moon mission. Um, he decides he wants to be an artist, a fine artist. He wants to go paint. And I was interviewing him, talking to him about this, why he made this dramatic pivot, um, you know, it, when he could have been approaching retirement, um, you know, kind of in the middle of his life. And he decided, I'm going to quit NASA and I'm going to become an artist. And I said, well, you know, it, it must have been because you had this passion for art. And he said, no, it wasn't because I had a passion for art. And I said, well, that's interesting. Tell me about that. And he said, um, the way I see it, uh, you know, I started out as a, a Navy man and then I, I joined NASA. I am a man who has always done his duty. And uh, painting was something that Alan had always done uh, on the side as an avocation. It was just a fun little hobby. And uh, when he went to the moon and he came back and years later, when they stopped sending missions to the moon, he was looking around one day at his, you know, among his coworkers at NASA, seeing kind of the next generation of astronauts. And he, and he, and he said to himself, he goes, well, hey, anybody can do what I do. Anybody can go fly the space shuttle, which I think is funny. Like anybody can do this. <laughs> but I mean, that's what he thought. Like, you know, anybody can come along and do this. How many people can paint the moon from firsthand experience of seeing it? And the answer is nobody. There were no other astronaut artists at the time. Today, there are a few. There's like one, one woman who, who does it now. But there you know, weren't many people because this idea of, you know, art and science, we don't typically put these things together. And, and so he said, I realized at that point that I had a duty to paint the moon. And because uh, this was almost a calling, I needed to take this seriously. This needed to be a job. This needed not just be something I did on the side, but I needed to do this for a living. So I had to charge for my art. I had to find a way to make a living off of it so that I could dedicate the most amount of time to it. So I had to find a way to make money to make art. Now today, Alan Bean is in his 80s, I believe, and his paintings of the moon sell for hundreds of thousands of dollars. And so I, th I thought that was just a, wow. a super fun story. Well, yeah, uh, I mean, firsthand yeah. experience. I mean, it's like, well, he did see it. So therefore, it's the, it's not just an artist's rendition of the moon. It's like, that's probably the actual moon that he's painting. Here, that yeah, well, here, here this, this is where it gets really crazy, Mike. It actually is the moon. And what I mean by this is um, when you... Uh, walk the moon. When you get to walk on the moon, you get to keep all your stuff. You get to keep your your astronaut suit, your shovel, and all the tools you work with. And so Alan, a few years into his career as a full-time artist, trying to, you know, make a go at it, goes, how do I do this? Uh, and he's looking at the, you know, the, the the blank canvas and he's stuck and he's struggling and he's and he's he's going to he loves art. He's going to art museums and going, Am I ever gonna be as good as Monet or Picasso? Like, what do I have? Again, it's that imposter syndrome, right? And, and then he looks over at his suit in the corner and he goes, oh, yeah, I have moon dust. 
So he paints the moon, and on every painting, he sprinkles a little bit of moon dust on it because the, the suit is still caked in, in dust you know, from, from being on the moon. And, and so when you buy a painting of his, you are literally buying a piece of the moon. Wow. And he, he ended up taking – um, the, you know, the tools, the shovels and stuff and roughing up the canvas and everything that was a part of that experience he puts into the painting itself, which obviously makes it an incredibly unique and valuable one of a kind, uh, work of art. But all he's doing is all that any of us can do, which is he's using what he has. Mm -hmm. He's using the resources that he has available to, to do his best work. So that was a fun story, real quick, uh, surprising story. Um, I came across this story, uh, about, um, an artist, uh, who, uh, named Modigliani, who, um, there's a legend in, in this town called Laborno. And, um, basically Modigliani was a sculptor. He made these sculptures and the people of Laborno said they were so bad that they said, you should just throw those in the canal. So that's what he did. He threw them in the canal. Um, and, uh, and so, um, uh, but like 75 years later, the, the, the town of Livorno is having a, uh, festival, right. And, and, and they're celebrating, you know, the history and they're actually celebrating the art of, uh, Amadeo Modigliani, who was from Livorno and it's not going so well. And so somebody has the idea, what if we drain the canal and try to find those, those, um, those sculptures that, that we've never been able to find. And so they decided to do it. They drain the canal and they find three, uh, busts, three sculptures, um, that look just like Modigliani, they bring in all the, you know, just like his work, they bring in all of these experts, they, you know, all, all these art historians and people from the art museum, people from Rome come up and they look at it and they go, yep, yep, yep. All these experts say, this is legit. This is really Modigliani's work. Well then, uh, you know, it makes national news, attracts all these people, international art community comes and the town is booming now. It's becoming a tourist hotspot again and their, you know, local economy is, is back and it was kind of suffering before. Then, uh, three college students come out and say, no, these are fakes. We made them a few days ago and we threw them into the canal as a prank. <laughs> then nobody believes them. They go, no, no, they're legit. Cause people have staked their reputations on this. They've said, no, 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 no. Like the, like these are real. Um, and they go, no here. And they go on national TV and they take a black and Decker drill and they recreate uh, the, the bus that they just found in, in, in the canal, they go, this is exactly how we did it. And they make them look identical to that. And they go, see, and they turn up national TV. They go, look guys, like we really did this. It's a prank. We're sorry. We feel bad. And then people still don't believe it. They go, no, 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 they're, they're lying. This is not true. They just want the publicity. And a few weeks later, they eventually come around and go, oh yeah, this, th these are fake. Um, and I think that's an interesting story. And this is the story that's, um, Rab Hatfield, um, uh, a professor in Italy of art history told me, and he was the guy who originally found out that Michelangelo had $50 million to his name when he died, when previously people thought he was kind of a struggling artist. And he turns out he was the richest artist of the Renaissance. And I asked him, I said, why do we still believe this idea of the starving artist? If, if it's true that many of history's most successful creative people did not starve the way that we think they did. And he said, because of this, because once you stake your identity on something, right? Like these are legitimate sculptures. The you know, artists have to starve. It's hard to change your mind. And sometimes it's easier to believe uh, a beautiful lie than it is to accept the difficult truth. And, and I, I, I love that story. I think it's true, you know, about human nature. And 
the one point I was trying to get across with this book is here's the truth. You don't have to starve. And this is actually good news, but we need to fall out of love with this myth, this idea of the starving artist. It doesn't have to be that way. We can create important, enduring work that thrives. Jeff, this has been great. And you definitely convey that message in this book and a lot more. Everybody that gets a chance to pick up this book, which is now out or available for pre-order if you're listening to this as we as we jump in. Real artists don't starve. Timeless strategies for thriving in the new creative age. Uh, Jeff, thanks so much for joining me today on the show. Mike, thank you. It's my pleasure. I had a great time with Jeff. Thanks to him for joining me on the episode today. If you've not picked up the book, and as this episode is airing, it is coming out the next day. So uh, you could pre-order it if you're ordering it before this point in time. And the links are in the show notes. So you can check that out. Uh, or just go to Amazon, wherever books are store- sold and stored. I think they're stored at Amazon, too. Uh, you can check out all the stuff. And, and the rest of his work, too. Like, Jeff has an amazing body of work. And I encourage you to check out everything that he has to offer. This book, though, I mean, I, I really enjoyed it. And I, I, I enjoyed spending more time with Jeff. Uh, we've had some chances to chat before at other conferences, but this was the first time when when I was in the Philippines. When you are there for a week with people, you get a chance to really connect with people on a more consistent basis. And uh, I had many many breakfasts and meals with Jeff, and and uh, a few beers as well. Um, and uh, it was it was a great time. And I hope you enjoyed this episode. Uh, thanks to John Polster for producing this episode. Uh, if you are a patron of the podcast, you're going to get more. In fact, you're going to hear how Jeff Goins works. Uh, I decided to do a, an episode to kind of pick his brain and figure out how he is able to produce at the level that he is. So if you want to become a patron uh, and you want to learn more about how to do that, go to patreon.com slash productivityist and uh, you can you can learn how to become a patron of the Productivityist podcast. There's lots of perks and everything for as little as a dollar a month. So thanks to Jeff for joining me. Thanks to John for producing the show. Thanks to all of you for listening. And until next time, I am Mike Vardy of Productivityist, reminding you to stop guessing and start going.